mercy and grace to you from God our Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Extol the Lord our God, worship at his footstool, holy is he. Let us pray. O gracious God, you have given us minds to know you and hearts to love you, voices to sing your praise, and so we've gathered this day our whole person to sing and worship you and to hear your word and to delight in your wonderful blessing and grace for us in Jesus Christ. By your spirit, we pray you be present with us so that our worship of you would be right and true and in uh, with the true relationship with you and not just um, in our own vanity, thinking that we could speak to you on our own. We pray you be present with us and help us to worship you now. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Our first hymn is number two, O Worship the King.
If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sin, God is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let us now confess our sin together with the prayer printed in the bulletin. Let us pray. Eternal God, in whom we live and move and have our being, whose face is hidden from us by our sins, and whose mercy we forget in the blindness of our hearts, forgive us our sins, cleanse us from all our offenses, and deliver us from proud thoughts and vain desires, that with reverent and humble hearts we may draw near to you, confessing our faults, confiding in your grace, and finding in you our refuge and strength, through Jesus Christ, your Son. Amen. Please stand for the assurance of pardon. Christian people, our Heavenly Father, who of his great mercy has promised forgiveness of sins to all who with hearty repentance and true faith turn to him, he has mercy upon us and delivers us and pardons us from all our sins. He confirms and strengthens us in all goodness, and he brings us to everlasting life in all of this through Jesus Christ our Lord. I declare to you as a minister of the gospel, a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, that all those who have faith in him and do repent of their sin are truly forgiven of all their sin. This is the good news of the gospel, and we say together, praise be to God. Holy people of God are called to obedience this morning as the Lord God Almighty who has delivered us from sin and destruction. He commands us saying, you shall have no other gods before me. Do not adopt the gods that are created for us today. There is, for example, the god called technology. Technology can be very good and do very good things. It can also do very horrible things. And there's plenty of evidence of that throughout history. We can make technology become, or we think it might become, the answer to all our problems, and that certainly seems to be uh, a very common uh, perception or attitude today. But in doing so, we turn it into a God, the God who's going to save us, technology will save us. That's one example. There's also the God of our security and prosperity. We have lots of money. We think if we accumulate more wealth, that then we'll be secure and we'll be set. Believing that we can rely on our own resources and what we control, people today believe in technology that it will take us forward to a utopia where all things will be good and right. With faith in the technology, there is hope that things are prosperous, that things will be more prosperous, and we will simply move further and further into a more perfect world. And then economic crises hit, inflation soars, money is scarce, and there's great fear and anxiety that sets in. Our trust fails because technology cannot save us. You are not to trust in technology or any other god of our making in this world. You are to trust in the God who has revealed himself to us as the Lord over the nations and all of history, who has created all things through Jesus Christ and brings his creation to its completion in Jesus Christ. You are to trust in him. He is the one who is the true God. He is the one who has the, knows the future and, and directs us into the future that he has set for us. We are not to think that we have the ability to control the future. Do not fear the sudden changes in our society. The Lord is God. He establishes his kingdom in this world, and he shall bring us to our glorious end 
in Jesus Christ. For this is God's will for us in Jesus Christ, and let us say, Amen. Our hymn is number 486, God Be Merciful to Me. Oh, Lord, and my mouth shall praise our core.
Let us bring our prayers together as we pray for all those in need. Let us pray. Most blessed God, our Father, whose love burns brightest of all, your love is is beyond our full comprehension. With such holy love and grace, you have touched us in Jesus Christ. Grace that surprises us with unexpected mercy and kindness. Grace that brings us salvation even when we were sinners. Grace that sets us in the way of righteousness through Jesus Christ. Inflame our hearts with love for Christ that we might love you with all our heart, with all our mind, with all our strength, and our neighbors as ourselves. Hear our prayers now as we pray for our neighbors and we pray for a greater love from Christ for them. Merciful Father, who sends the rain upon the just and the unjust, we pray for those in need in our communities, the elderly, the homebound, the mentally ill, the jobless, the hungry, the fearful, the people in Florida who have suffered from the hurricane. We pray that you would demonstrate to them your mercy. If they reject you, give them more than they expect so that they might be led to give thanks to you and praise your name. And lest we begrudge your generous mercy to sinners, we pray that we would remember your kingdom in the teaching of Christ, who said, Be merciful as your heavenly Father is merciful. We pray for all of these and ask that you would send them relief of different kinds, O Lord, Hear our prayers for those in need, those faces and names that come to mind. Lord, we pray for the nations of the world who are powerless before you, who act not according to your wisdom and not always according to what is good. We pray for justice and peace in Syria, in Afghanistan, in Ukraine. Iran, North Korea, Haiti, and in the cities of the United States. We pray for wise and responsible political decisions. Bless us with wise economic and political knowledge and and policies that improve our life in this country. Even when our leaders act out of their own self-interest, we pray that you would work out ways for us to have more peace and to be able to flourish and to care for one another. Make the way for nations and people to live beside each other without conflict and for just governments to be established. We pray you would stop the aggression of Russia. While leaders and governments struggle and negotiate for their own interests, only by your hand will there be order in this world. And so we pray that being citizens of your kingdom, you would make us peacemakers in the name of Christ that we would point to that good order that he brings and practice that radical righteousness that he taught where we are willing to walk a mile with those who would force us to walk just one. Hear our prayers for the nations of this world. O Christ, our Savior, for the church, we pray as it grows and new churches begin around the world. We thank you for the particularization of Reformation OPC in Grand Rapids and David Noe, their pastor. We pray for all Christians that we all may be faithful witnesses to your salvation in Jesus Christ and that your kingdom would be revealed in this world. 
Here are our prayers for the missionary work of the church, and especially for Sam Fulta and his family in China and Mike McCabe and his family in South Korea as they teach and proclaim Jesus Christ. Here are our prayers for the church, for those churches that come to mind, and for our missionaries. Almighty Father, we ask for your care and grace for the church gathered here for Providence OPC and for our friends. We pray for those who are in poor health or discouraged or grieving, who are weary or need help. We pray for Eduardo and Shirley, Bob and Fawn, Leah, Jeff and Linda, Becky, Mrs. Mesner, Angie, Bob, Judy, Tom, Phil, Seth, Karen, and others we name to you in silence. Heal them, O God. Restore them. Renew their Christian faith and obedience by your word and spirit, who is present and abiding with us in holiness and power. And for those who come to the end of their life, we pray that you would hold them firmly in your grace and that they would be kept by you and that you would give them good care to the end. We pray for those with other needs in this congregation, for those with work-related needs or financial needs. We also pray for our students in school who are studying here or away at college. Hear our prayers. Grant us all the grace and strength for another week in which we can serve you and others with joy and thanksgiving no matter what our circumstances are, for we serve you through faith in Jesus Christ. Receive our prayers, O Father, who sent your Son for our salvation, and the Holy Spirit who helps us to pray as Jesus taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Let us present our gifts and offerings to the Lord. Thank you. 
Let us pray now as we prepare to hear God's word read and preached. Let us pray. Father in heaven, um, it is not just poetry. It is a reality that your word is a light, a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Without it, we would be lost. And we pray for the quickening and uh, penetrating work of your spirit working with the word to enliven us and increase faith, hope, and love in our hearts. Through Christ we pray. Amen. We begin our reading in Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 51, beginning in verse 17. Hear now God's word. Wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord, the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs, the bowl, the cup of staggering. There is none to guide her among all the sons she has borne. There is none to take her by the hand. Among all the sons she has brought up, these two things have happened to you. Who will console you? Devastation and destruction, famine and sword, who will comfort you? Your sons have fainted. They lie at the head of every street like an antelope in a net. They are full of the wrath of the Lord. They rebuke the rebuke of your God. Therefore hear this, you who are afflicted, who are drunk, but not with wine. Thus says your Lord, the Lord, your God, who pleads the cause of his people. Behold, I have taken from your hand the cup of staggering, the bowl of my wrath you shall drink no more. And I will put it into the hand of your tormentors, who have said to you, bow down that we may pass over. And you have made your back like the ground and like the street for them to pass over. Our Psalter reading is in the bulletin. I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. The snares of death encompassed me. The pangs of Sheol laid hold on me. I suffered distress and anguish. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. Return, O my soul, to your rest, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I believed even when I spoke. I am greatly afflicted. I said in my alarm, all mankind are liars. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? 
I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will pray my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. In the courts of the house of the Lord, in your midst, O Jerusalem. Praise Praise the Lord. Lord. We turn now to Hebrews, chapter 5, beginning in verse 5. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And finally, our gospel reading in Mark, chapter 14, beginning in 32. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that, if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter in temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. The word of the Lord. We've been hearing the Word of God preached through the Gospel of Mark, an easy way to think about the Gospel of Mark, which is uh, the smallest of the four Gospels, but um, no less um, important and full of uh, 
important things for us to know about Jesus Christ and conveys to us the word of God and the good gospel of Jesus Christ. But a a very simple way to think about the gospel of Mark is it's about Jesus Christ, of course, who is the Lord, who comes into this world, who is the Lord in the first half of of the writing, talks a lot about what he's the Lord over, all these different things, sin, sickness, leprosy. Uh, people, all of that. And then the second half, roughly the second half of the Gospel of Mark is about the Lord, Jesus Christ, who goes to the cross to suffer and die. And that's where we are now. We're in chapter 14. Death is more serious than we think it is. Although we do take the psychology of death seriously, the loss of death, accepting the fact that the deceased will no longer be with us, that's the subject of much therapy today. I remember back in the 1970s, the psychologist Elizabeth Kubler-Ross was promoting model, a model for the stages of death. First, there's denial, she said, then bargaining. It's followed by depression. And then if we move through those stages, then there is full acceptance. The skilled counselor works with the person who has lost a loved one to move through those different stages of grief. And then there are funeral homes, funeral homes that... Um, have a certain psychology of death that they promote. Funeral homes push the idea that if someone we love dies, then we must view the body to find closure in our relationship with that person. That's a psychological kind of argument. But even with the grief of loss, and even if we take the psychology of death seriously, we do not look into death far enough. An elderly neighbor of ours died many years ago, and my wife went to the funeral. The woman was not a Christian, and the funeral lacked much seriousness. Now, it was the standard kind of thing where family members got up and spoke uh, about their mother or their grandmother. Friends spoke. There were a lot of uh, eulogies given and a lot of fond memories of her. At the end of the service, the funeral home, and I'm sure it was at the instigation of the family, but the funeral home turned on a rock song called Spirit in the Sky by Norman Greenbaum. You've probably heard it, even if you don't recognize the name. Spirit in the Sky. And it begins with the confident strutting sound of an electric guitar and drumbeat. And then the lyrics break out, and here are a couple stanzas from that song. When I die and they lay me to rest, going to go to the place that's the best. When they lay me down to die, going up to the spirit in the sky. Prepare yourself, you know it's a must, gotta have a friend in Jesus, so you know that when you die, he's going to recommend you to the spirit in the sky. Never been a sinner, I've never sinned, I've got a friend in Jesus, so you know that when I die, he's going to set me up with the spirit in the sky. And then the funeral ended. And everyone left with the uplifting music of spirit in the sky reverberating in their heads. On the other hand, there is some somber thinking about, the, about death today. There is somber existential reflection by many in our society that death is our end. That when we die, that is it. This is what my grandfather believed. It's just done. It's over. Our existence is over. There's nothing more to death than a heart stopper and the final curtain of our life. Now, in our lesson this morning from Mark, Jesus faces the full reality of death. Jesus, during his passion, on his way to the cross, led his disciples into the Garden of Gethsemane. The scribes and the priests and Judas had made their move to put Jesus to death. 
We're in that section of Mark where every story in chapter 14 and into 15 is tied into Jesus' passion leading to his death. So we need to hear each story all related to that. Our story this morning is, is pretty easy to see that. They were a company of friends, Jesus and his disciples. From the beginning of the Gospel of Mark, Jesus pulled his disciples together to follow him. There was Simon Peter, Andrew, James, and John, uh, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Cananean, and Judas, and they were all brought together by Jesus. Judas, of course, left Jesus, but the others were still with him in the Garden of Gethsemane. They had traveled many miles together. They had faced many troubles. The disciples stuck with Jesus through the desolate areas and in the cities. Now, Jesus was always their leader. The focus point, the focal point of all of of this was Jesus Christ. But they had been with him through thick and thin. The sick people who surrounded Jesus for help, the horrific demons shrieking, the menacing Jewish leaders who approached them at various times, and the crowds of people. To the gates of death they had come, although the disciples did not much understand what was happening. Nevertheless, they were a company of friends. Now, there are many stories of companies of friends that are both ancient and modern. The Odyssey by Homer is one of those. It's a story of Ulysses and his comrades traveling through the Greek isles in order to return to his wife and son. And they faced many ordeals together, and his friends assisted Ulysses all along the way. A more modern story of a company of friends is Star Wars. Like Luke Skywalker, Princess Leia, Han Solo, Chewbacca, R2-D2, C-3PO, Yoda, Obi-Wan, Kenobi... They become friends, and they go on a mission to stop the evil empire. I'm thinking, uh, when I first saw it, I think it was 1978 or whatever, the first trilogy. They back each other up. They encourage one another. They stay loyal throughout their journey. And one more, The Hobbit. The Hobbit is a classic company of friends story. Bilbo Baggins is selected by Gandalf the wizard to join a group of dwarfs on their mission to retake the mountain where the dwarfs, their ancestors, once lived. And that was before a terrible dragon named Smog attacked the dwarf kingdom and took over the mountain, running the dwarves out. Bilbo did not want to leave his house, but he reluctantly joins the company of dwarves in Gandalf. The dwarves, and especially their leader Thorin, have their doubts, but they set off together anyway. Together they face many adventures, including fights with goblins and orcs. And after one such fight, Bilbo is separated from the rest of the group, and the dwarves think that he has turned around and gone home. However, Bilbo shows up, and they confront him. Thorin asks Bilbo why he came back to them. And this is what Bilbo says. I know you doubt me. I know you always have. You are right. I do think of Bag Inn. That was his home. I miss my books, my armchair, my garden. That is my home. That is why I came back. You don't have one. You don't have a home. It was taken from you, but I will help you take it back if I can. They are a company of friends helping each other, encouraging each other, supporting each other in the face of great danger and death. Not so with Jesus and his company of disciples. 
Jesus was approaching the terrible hour of his death. He had told the disciples that it was coming. He would be delivered into the hands of men and killed, and after three days he would be raised. Yes, he would rise from the dead, but he still had to die. Jesus had to enter the harrowing, dreadful reality of death. Now you might think, well, what could they do? They could have stayed with him. In fact, Jesus asked them to watch with him in the hour of his testing as the end approached. Martin Luther explains that in his anguish and loneliness, Jesus yearned for their company. Luther speaks of Jesus seeking comfort from his disciples who previously he had comforted. And yet they could not even stay awake and pray for him during this time of testing. Jesus' disciples failed to strengthen him for his upcoming death. Jesus faced the reality of his death without the support of the company of his friends. Now, despite his disciples, Jesus was obedient to go forth to his death. His prayer in verse 36 sounds like he felt compelled to go to his death. Mark says Jesus fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. Well, the hour is the time of his testing. The crucial moment of his arrest and death had come. It loomed before Jesus, and Jesus knew what was coming. Jesus prayed, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Now, what is crucial here, I think we all tune in to that word possible, but we're missing something that's more crucial here. What is crucial is that as he faces the full reality of death, Jesus prays to God as Abba, Father. And we must not miss that, that Jesus called God Abba. This is the only place in all of the Gospels where Jesus addresses God as Abba. It was an intimate word. It was a very unusual form of address. When he prayed to God as he went forward to death, Jesus expressed an intimate closeness to God the Father. Jesus knew God as his Father even at Gethsemane. Now we need to be careful how we hear what Jesus prays at the hour of his death. He never said he was not willing to go to his death. Jesus makes no demand of God. And he does not set his will over and against the will of his Father. Instead, Jesus was expressing his willingness to obey the Father. Jesus stood on the precipice and he saw the full horror of death. The test had come. And our epistle lesson from Hebrews helps us with with what Jesus said. Hebrews says, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. And Hebrews is reflecting right back on this very story. Rather than abandoning the will of God, Jesus entrusts himself to his Father. Now, maybe that's not the way we would express the way, the way we would entrust ourselves to someone. That's not the way the words we say it in our modern day. But it is the way that Jesus said it in his day. It's a way of expressing his trust in the Father. Jesus entrusted himself to the Father in the face of the horrible reality of death. Jesus willingly submitted to obey the will of God. Jesus reveals that death goes far deeper than we know. As Jesus stood at the door of death, our text says, 
he began to be greatly distressed and troubled, verse 33. Now, there are echoes of the Psalms in this. Like our Psalter response this morning, Psalm 116, you've got it right there in front of you in the bulletin, that uses some of these same words. The psalmist says, The snares of death encompassed me, the pangs of Sheol laid hold on me, I suffered distress and anguish. Now, that's in Hebrew, but um, the words translated into Greek are the same words. Jesus uses that language when he faced death. Distress and anguish. It was not a common kind of disturbance within him. It wasn't like the stress of you having to go talk to your boss about a poor job performance or you're going to ask for a raise or something like that and that nervousness you have when you go do that or the trauma of almost being hit by a speeding car. It's not that kind of distress and anguish. The distress in Jesus was the kind that comes from being in the grip of a shuddering horror. The ESV, our, our, uh, tra- our, the Bible we use in our worship, translates one of the words as troubled. Jesus was troubled, and that's a very mild way of putting it. The word means something like an agony from which there is no escaping. The closest we might come to this kind of agony in this life and live to tell about it is falling ill to some excruciatingly painful disease or being burned in a fire. The psalmist was racked with a severe illness. This is a psalm being prayed from a a person who was was sick. He had a severe illness, and from that comes his distress and anguish. But God delivered, if you listen to the whole psalm, God delivered the psalmist in Psalm 116 from that illness, which is why the psalmist offers his thanksgiving to God and pays his vows in the presence of all his people. That's in the language of the psalm. Jesus, on the other hand, goes forth to his death and is not spared from it. And Jesus knows that he will not be spared. It's the Lord's purpose to die. And so the depth of Jesus' distress and anguish is far greater than the psalmist because the psalmist ends up being relieved from the illness. Jesus does not. He faces death and goes into death. As he lay prostrate in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus looked into the depths of death. Death is much deeper than we think. It's like looking at a black hole in space. We can see it from afar. We can take photos of light, of the light and debris that are being sucked into the black hole. We can take measurements of it on the outside, but we don't know all that is inside the black hole because whatever goes into it doesn't come out. Staring at death, we see loss, we see pain and suffering, we see finality, but we do not see all that Jesus Christ saw. Scripture tells us there was temptation in Jesus' death. This is brought out even more in the Gospel of John. It implies that the devil was in it. Jesus confronted, in John, Jesus confronted the ruler of this world in his death. Mark uses the word temptation when Jesus warns his disciples to watch with him in verse 38. He uses that word. But Mark doesn't make it so obvious as John does. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. And both Matthew and Luke speak of temptation at the moment Jesus faced death. Jesus looked into death and he saw Satan lurking about. 
But there's something else that Jesus saw in death, and he specifically mentions it in his prayer. He speaks of a cup. The metaphor of a cup can refer to several different things in the Old Testament, and one of those is God's wrath for sin. So you have to pay attention to the context of the cup to understand what kind of a cup it represents. But it can represent the wrath of God. The prophets used the metaphor of a cup when they talked about sinful, sinful Israel or the sinful nations. Our Old Testament lesson from Isaiah has one such reference in it. The prophet of the Lord tells Israel that they have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath. Verse 17 in Isaiah 51. So Jesus looked into his death and he saw the wrath of God. It was the wrath of God for sin. It was not Jesus' sin. It was the sin of the world. But because Jesus came to take humanity's sin upon himself, he faced the wrath of God. Martin Luther again said, no one faced death such as this man. Now right away, it must be said that the wrath of God is not like our wrath. Our wrath tends to be spiteful and hypocritical. We become furious when someone gets in our way, but we expect others to give us a pass when we are in their way. Our wrath is up and down and temperamental and off and on. We can fly into a rage imitating how we were raised. If our parents had raged, we can imitate that very easily when we're older. Or we fly into a rage, we become wrathful when we are tired or because we've not had enough to eat or just because we want to blame someone else for our problems or because we didn't get our own way or from assumptions we make. There are all kinds of reasons that we can be full of rage and wrath. There was a news story last week of an American tourist in one of the Vatican museums in Rome. Did you hear about this? He requested an audience with the Pope, but he was told that that would be impossible, as if you could walk into the Vatican and say, hey, I want to see the Pope. Immediately, this tourist became angry and began to knock over some of the antique Roman busts that were on pedestals nearby. God's wrath against sin is not like our wrath. It's the action of his love and his holiness. God created the world and he created us and he created it all good, right, and true. Sin corrupts what is good, right, and true. Sin turns what is good into what is evil. It turns what is right into unrighteousness. It turns what is true into, <clears throat> excuse me, into deceit and into what is false. And God is always always against sin and what it produces. And he always acts against it by restoring the good and removing the sin. God is also holy, and therefore no sin or evil can abide with him. His wrath is his abhorrence of what is sinful and evil. And that's why scripture depicts God surrounded by brilliant light, and there's no darkness in him at all. And one of the key words here is always. God is consistently, faithfully, always, never changing, opposed to what is sin and evil and um, what, is, uh, what undoes his good creation. <clears throat> we cannot know God's wrath fully and tell about it. To enter into his wrath would consume us. And the Bible uses many different metaphors to express his wrath in this world, in the book of Numbers, in the Old Testament, it's a burning fire. 
In Joel, the prophet Joel, it is an army of large locusts spread over the land, devouring everything in their path. In the prophet Nahum, it is the great whirlwind and the storm. In the book of Exodus, it is the divine warrior who destroys the army of Egypt. In Revelation, God's wrath is four horsemen who ride across the earth, bringing death with sword, famine, pestilence, and wild beasts. However, none of these, these are all God's wrath expressed in in time. None of these metaphors fully express God's eternal opposition to sin and evil. Now, we preachers, when we talk about God's wrath, uh, preachers have often tried to illustrate it in their sermons. A famous one is in the sermon by Jonathan Edwards, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. It used to be that was required reading in schools, even public schools, because it was such a a, uh, had such a huge impact on the colonies uh, back in the 18th century. Edwards described the relation of sinners to God's wrath like a spider hanging over a pit of fire. Just as you might toss a spider into the fire or crush one under your foot, without a second, this is the way Edwards talks about it, without a second thought or twinge of remorse, so Edwards says God is ready at any moment to cast sinners down into into eternal damnation. The God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. Now, we might not want to say it exactly the way Edwards says it, but it was a powerful image it affected that people would come from all over to hear the preaching of this, this kind of preaching in the early colonies. Um, and, it, and many would, uh, would, would uh, confess their faith in God or, or be stimulated to be faithful in following Christ. It's a different world than we live in, but it was a very powerful image. And nevertheless, with all these kinds of images and the Bible uses, the, the preachers use, This side of death, we will never know the full wrath of God. We cannot look into death and see what Jesus saw. Now, Scripture does help us, so we can look into death, and and with the Word of God, we can have a better knowledge of it, but we'll never see the full wrath of God as we look into death. But But Jesus faced death, and he knew the full wrath of God that was before him. Jesus did look into death, and he saw its full reality, its full depth. And he went forward anyway. Jesus went forward to his death so that he might bear the wrath of God for us. It was God taking his wrath upon himself by sending his son, Jesus Christ, into the world for us. Now, following Jesus, we Christians are to take death more seriously and less seriously. I wish Mr. Klaus was here. I could say these are two things that are true and simultaneously true. only if we understand Jesus. We are to take death more seriously and less seriously. Jesus instructed his disciples, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Watch. Taking death seriously with faith in Jesus is watching. We take it more seriously than the world around us. Those who take death seriously know that it brings loss and suffering. Yes, we know that, and we take that seriously. They know, those who take it seriously, know that it usually comes with pain and sometimes excruciating pain. But because of Jesus, we know that it's much more than that, as bad as that is. Jesus reveals reveals to us that in death, the devil is lurking about, tempting us not to trust God, not to take it seriously. 
The devil tempts us to think that we can pass through death to God without any great difficulty like that song, Spirit in the Sky. Most of all, Jesus reveals to us that in death, there's God's wrath. And that's why we Christians take death more seriously. Watching with faith in Jesus, we also take death less seriously. We take death less seriously than the world does. And it's not that we make it silly or trite or less serious in that way. We take it less seriously than the world because of Jesus. Jesus, the obedient Son of God, was put to death, but God raised him from the dead, defeating the devil. He did not succumb to the devil's temptation. And we also take death less seriously because Jesus Christ went forward into death as God's obedient servant in order to satisfy God's wrath for all those who have faith in him. Jesus took the power out of death. Therefore, with faith in Jesus, you can approach your death entrusting yourself to him. Now, there may still be pain when you die. There will be suffering and loss. But with trust in Jesus comes confidence and peace, even if we cannot fathom the depths of death. Entrust yourself to the Lord Jesus who went forth to his death for you and be watchful. Let us pray. Almighty God, by the passion of your blessed Son, you made an instrument of shameful, shameful death to be for us the means of life, Christ's death to be our life. Grant us so to glory in the cross of Christ that we may confidently face our death by entrusting ourselves to him, and this to the praise of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. Please stand and let us confess our faith with the creed in the bulletin. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, through whom all things were made, who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried, and the third day he rose again according to the scriptures and ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And he shall come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And we believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and we look for the resurrection of the dead, and the life of the world to come. Amen. We come to the Lord's table singing our hymn number 598, Guide Me, O Thou Great Jehovah.
Jesus gave us many wonderful promises, many wonderful promises to his church. And one of them is this. He said, I will not leave you desolate. I will come to you yet a little while, and the world will see me no more. But you will see me, because I live, you will live also. He said these words to his disciples before, immediately before his death. The Apostle Paul writes and passes on the tradition of the institution of the Lord's Supper, but he writes this. I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. There are threats to the community of Christ. We are hearing the word of God preached from the Gospel of Mark where those threats are made very obvious. The powers of sin threaten to undo us both from without, outside the church, and within. Many dangers would destroy us if they could. They are there. There's no sense in denying them. But in this meal, our Lord assures us that he is victorious over sin, and he will not let the powers of evil destroy his church. The word of God says that God has disarmed the principalities and powers and made a public example of them, triumphing over them in Christ. When Christ, who is your life, appears, you will also appear with him in glory. With faith in Jesus Christ and by the power of his grace, we now love one another and we look to the interests of each other. With faith in Christ and by the power of his grace, we do not return evil for evil, but we bless others and we are zealous for what is right. Listen now to all, to all of you who have been baptized, to all who have professed their faith in Jesus Christ publicly, to all of you who belong or are communicant members of a Christian church. You are welcome to come and share in this joyful feast of our Lord. And as you accept this gracious invitation to the Lord's table, you confirm that you are trusting Jesus Christ alone as your Savior from sin. You are endeavoring with all your heart to seek to live with love and concern for your fellow Christians with whom you will be eating and drinking. We had communion at the Presbytery meeting Friday um, at the installation of the pastor there and the particularization of the church. And they don't usually serve communion with that service, but they did this time. And I remember uh, waiting, you know, we, we wait to take the bread and the cup and we were waiting and just looking around. And that's a good thing to do, is not to just simply bow your head and look down, but look around at your fellow Christians with whom you're eating and drinking and remembering that Christ has brought us together as his body and we are communing with him at this table and with each other. Join with me now in giving thanks to God for his salvation and life for us in Jesus Christ. The Lord be with you. And also with you. Lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is right to give him thanks and praise. Let us pray. It is indeed right, it is our duty and our great joy at all times, wherever we may be, to give you thanks and praise. Holy Father, Heavenly King, Almighty and Eternal God, thanks that we give through Jesus Christ our Lord, for you have created us and we are yours. Most of all, you have given your Son to be our great High Priest, who has loosed from us our sins and has made us to be a royal priesthood to you, our God and Father. 
And so, with the host of heaven, we proclaim your great and glorious name, and we forever praise you and say, Holy, holy, holy Lord, God of power and might, heaven and earth are full of your glory. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Indeed, all glory be to you, our Heavenly Father, who in your tender mercy gave your only Son, our Savior Jesus Christ, to suffer, suffer death upon the cross for our redemption, who made there by his once offering of himself a full, perfect, and sufficient sacrifice, an offering and satisfaction for the sins of the whole world. He instituted and in his holy gospel commanded us to continue a perpetual memory of his precious death until he comes again. Hear us, merciful Father, we humbly pray and grant that by the power of your Holy Spirit, we receiving the gifts of your creation, this bread and this cup, according to your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ's holy institution, in remembrance of his death and passion, may be for us a communion in the body and blood of your dear Son. For we do receive them with faith, and we pronounce that faith, that historic faith of your church, that Christ has died, and Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. Therefore, Lord and Heavenly Father, in remembrance of the precious death and passion of Jesus Christ, his mighty resurrection and glorious ascension, we offer you, through him, this our praise and thanksgiving. Grant that by his merits and death and through faith in his blood, we and all your church may receive forgiveness of our sins and all other benefits of his passion. Although we are unworthy through our many sins to offer you any service, yet we pray that you would accept this, the duty and service that we owe, as we make it in union with Jesus Christ. Do not weigh our merits, but pardon our offenses, and fill us all who share in this holy communion with your grace and heavenly blessing. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, by whom and with whom and in whom, in the unity of the Holy Spirit, all honor and glory be yours, Almighty Father, forever and ever. And we offer our thanksgiving with one voice. And together we say, Amen. The Lord Jesus Christ took the bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body given for you. And he also took the cup, saying, This cup is the cup of the new covenant, sealed in my blood, shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you drink it, do this in remembrance of me.
Jesus said, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. But he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Take and eat this bread and drink this cup and remember Christ's body and blood given for you. Receive it with faith and thanksgiving. Take and eat and drink. Let us pray. Father of all, we give you thanks and praise that when we were still far off, you met us in your Son and brought us home. Dying and living, he bore our sin, gave us grace, and opened the gate of glory. May we who share Christ's body live his risen life. We who drink his cup show others the true vine. We whom the Spirit lights give light to the world. Keep us firm in the hope that you have set before us so that we and all your children shall be free. And the whole earth live to praise your name. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Our final hymn is number 161, O Christ, our hope, our heart's desire.
May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. And the blessing of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be upon you all now and forever. Amen. Announcements this morning basically amount to reminding you of some items on the calendar uh, beginning immediately after our fellowship time here uh, with Christian education class and Thursday Bible study um, here at the church. Yes. So this Thursday, the study will not meet the prison fellowship. I'm standing here because the microphone's here. Um, so people online can hear. Um, the prison ministry, Oakland County Jail, has restarted. They're, oh. they're doing a training um, this Thursday. So those who've already been registered with them can go and kind of be reset. And then I don't know when we'll actually be going in again, probably in November. So I need Great. to go up there. They chose a time right when the Bible study is. I called them and said, hey, we have a bunch. No. Um, but anyway, <laughs> uh, so I need to go to that. And so we will not meet this week. And then in two weeks, I'm gone for a little vacation. So the next two Thursdays, we will not meet for Bible study and then pick up after that. Okay. And I don't know if there's been any update on the Lawrence Tech. No, it's just a matter of meeting students right now. Okay. But they're allowing you to set up and so forth? No. No? Okay. Okay. All right. Uh, that's all I have. Heidi. Actually, I'm wondering if Elias Matthias Tobias has got the board. <laughs> Chris and Holly are down there. Okay. Down. Okay. Um, no baby yet. No baby yet? Oh, soon. Soon. <laughs> okay, well, we got, we got a video of Hannah, and her baby looks like yesterday. I am ready to be free. <laughs> so, anyway. We got to see quite a little rumble going on in that belly. I thought, oh my God. Okay, very good. Can you, can you repeat that for the folks? Oh. Um. I, I was paying attention, but kind of in a passive way. Um, no baby yet for uh, the Tobiases, Ben and Courtney, uh, but soon we expect. And Hannah is expecting an active little baby to arrive soon. Uh, I should mention there's a change on the date for the women's prayer meeting. So normally it's, what, second Thursday, and this it, it's kicked to the 20th. So just if you plan to go to that, just note the change. Okay. John, this microphone is on, so they can hear me. Okay. Any poetry today, George? That's always 
uh, reserved for a private. Uh, I'm sure the new babies that are coming into the world would love to. Yes. Well, I have to think of something appropriate for little ones. And then I'll get I'll get back to you. Thank you. That is all. <laughs>